As we started uh, our study of Acts, we kind of, as a summary statement, and I will, I told you I would elaborate on this in the next couple of weeks. It's probably going to be next week, not this week. So, um, but the summary statement is just Acts, the book of Acts. It's about, it's, it's about the ongoing mission of our triune God. And so it is, we are by grace. It's not through any merit of our own. It's not because the Lord chose us because we were so special or because or we heard this opportunity to be involved in this ongoing mission of the triune God, and we say, yeah, I want that. I can really contribute something. No, the Lord, in His grace, chose us and, and has swept us up into this mission by His sovereign mercy so that we are, we are beneficiaries of this ongoing mission. The Lord, has, has His salvation has spread to us, and now we're also ambassadors of it. We're witnesses of Christ. Uh, together and so we we are part of this plan again by grace just like the apostles were chosen by the lord for their time and their unique role we the lord has chosen us and he's put us in this time in this place to be part of this this mission and so what we're going to see this morning as we continue to develop that throughout the study of acts is that our our triune god's ongoing mission it's unstoppable there's there's nothing that can thwart his his purpose, his plan, and so that's what we'll we'll see in this in this kind of unique section of of Acts. Now we have uh, some some young couples in our church who are expecting a ch- children right now, and I will not try to name all of those because I will leave some out, or I will prematurely announce somebody that. Uh, and I have done both, and much to my regret. I can safely say Luke and Sarah are anticipating a child. I think everybody's aware of that. She's on staff here, and and any and, and so they're anxiously. She's a this is a she's the first one that we've ever had to have any kind of uh, maternity leave for a staff member of Barack Bible Church. So we're work work through that and set that up. But we have we have some expectant uh, parents, and and with with. Um, the technology we have now, and I'm sure they've benefited from this, we can, you can see the unborn child in the womb with quite a bit of detail. Uh, it's really remarkable, and particularly they have these 3D imagery, the 3D imagery now, and so you can really see these really clear images of, of these, the children in the womb. So while the child isn't born yet, isn't breathing air you can't you can't touch that soft baby skin you can't you know hear those little sweet baby sounds and or the really loud painful baby sounds you can't you can't make that out but you can still you can still see this child you can make out many of his or her features you can you know even see oh it looks like yeah that looks like dad the profile looks like mom it looks like dad and you can see the little movements and and sometimes big movements, and, and you feel those things. So there's wonderful life in that womb of the mother. And there, there, there is a human being that's about to be born into this world. And we'll get to meet some of these little human beings soon, and our nursery will be filled with these little human beings. But in Acts chapter 1, we are sort of, we're sort of looking at an ultrasound image of the church. And so the church is still in utero. It's going to be born really soon in Acts chapter 2. And so, but here, while the, while the Spirit hasn't come yet, while, while there are, there are, there are things that we, 
can't quite see yet about the church, we can still begin to make out some of her very distinctive features. That's what we find here. And so you have men and women gathered together and they're there together in this persistent prayer and they're hearing God speak to them uh, and guide them through His Word, through His truth. And so this is what we find. So the, the due date, as it were, it's approaching very fast. And so only 10 days from now, from this Christ-planned delivery date at Pentecost. And so the final preparations are, be, uh, are being made. We're about to get this announcement that it's a church. And, and so all of this is, is building. But here we find this morning's text, and it's kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's sort of waiting for this moment. It's, it's interesting in its context and in its content. And so you probably picked this up as we read it. And so sandwiched between... Christ's commission to be His witnesses to the ends of the earth between that commission and between the birth of the church. Between the promise of the Holy Spirit and the arrival of the Spirit, we find these verses that Jim read for us a moment ago. And so between these two massive, critical, uh, just world-changing moments of redemptive history, between these, we have these really gory details of Judas's death. And, and we have all of this detail about how his apostolic office is going to be filled. And so a natural question to ask, and a right question to ask, is why is this here? That's a question we should ask whenever we, when we're studying the Scriptures. What's, what's intended here? Why has is, why is the Spirit prompted the author to record this, and why is it recorded here for us? And so that should be, again, something. Why is this here in this point of the narrative. And so I think we get to the purpose right in the middle of the passage. And so right right in the middle, there are these two Old Testament quotes, quotations here. And so in all, that's what I see, in all of the human chaos and confusion that's going on in this part of the narrative, in this part of redemptive history, in all of that, all of that disruption, there is this divine clarity that shines in. There is this God speaking into the midst of this. He's, he's, he's entering in. And so you see it in verse 16. Peter stands up in this, with this group of 120 very anxious disciples of, of Jesus. And he says, what? Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. What, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And then you get to verse 20 and you have these two quotes from the book of Psalms. One is connected to Judas's downfall. One is about his replacement. And so then in verse 21, these two qualified men, they're brought forth as potential replacements for Judas Iscariot. And what do we read? Verse 21, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And, and I think that's, that's getting at why this is here. You see those, that, that little word, had to, must. It's the same word actually in Greek here. And it's communicating this language of divine necessity. <coughs> it had to be this way. These things must take place. This had to be fulfilled. And by divine design, by divine decree, these things had to come to pass. And so the, the flag flying over this whole section here, these verses and all of the, again, this kind of weird, weird stuff with all these details about guts 
spilling out and all of this that's going on, the flag flying over this section is the absolute unstoppability of God's mission, of His purpose. The mission that our triune God is, 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 is ongoing, that ongoing mission, it will not be stopped. It will not be thwarted. I think that's the, the essence of what's being communicated here. God's sovereignty, it's burning bright within the darkness of these verses here. And so His purpose must come to pass. His word must be fulfilled. And so what seems like a setback, what seems catastrophic, what, what seems like something that's just going to doom this mission from the get-go, it actually, it's part of God's purpose. And it must be accomplished. It must be fulfilled. Our triune God is unstoppable in accomplishing His ongoing mission. That's, that's what's being communicated here. Now, so set that aside. That's kind of the 40,000 foot uh, view of, of these verses here. I know that as Christians, we can sometimes choke a little on this truth, this message of God's sovereignty, can't we? I mean, just if I get a little feedback. I know it's always risky in a group this size, but what are some areas of our lives where we may struggle to reconcile the truth of God's sovereignty with some aspect of our life? What are some common areas that we struggle with? Somebody. Suffering, absolutely. When things are going, the wheels are coming off and facing all kinds. How does this square with the fact that God's in control? Anything else? Okay, unexpected death. Yeah, particular kinds of suffering. Yeah. What about prayer? Why are we we praying if the Lord is sovereign and these things have to come to pass? Anything else? Salvation. Evangelism, mission. You're like, why, why, why bother? Like, what is this for? If if the Lord is is ordained these things, and if it's in His sovereignty, these things are going to come pass. Absolutely. I mean, there could be. There's many other. There's other areas of decision making. But what we see is all of these common struggles that we we have in trying to uh, square the truth of God's sovereign authority with things like prayer and evangelism, salvation, and suffering, and decision-making, all of those are present in this text. I mean, that's, what, that's, what, that's the stuff they're, they're, they're dealing with. I don't mean that they're struggling with, but what's the point of praying if God is sovereign? Why bother going to the ends of the earth with the gospel if he's, if he's sovereign over salvation? For that matter, why bother opening our mouth with our coworker? Why not just zip it and just do our work and go home? Why bother praying? For their salvation, why bother speaking? Well, God just save whoever He wants. How can I affirm God's sovereign rule when horrific tragedies come, and they do? When 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 uh, terrorism, cancer, abuse, house fire, natural disasters, death, and all of these things come, how do we square this? Now, if you're expecting me to to directly answer all of those questions this morning, you're going to be disappointed. That's out of the purview of, of this. But this passage does deal with those struggles. It does. And so we have prayer. We have mission. We have decisions. We have suffering in this passage where the flag of God's sovereignty flies high and free. So we'll see. I think we'll be held. Maybe you've been praying for the same, praying the same prayer for years. And you, you do struggle at times. 
with unbelief. Maybe, maybe your once vocal witness of Christ has become rather silent. Maybe, maybe you're walking through an exceedingly difficult time in your life right now. Well, I just say there's wonderful encouragement for us here. And, and, and nothing, nothing can, can undermine the purposes of our unstoppable God. That's the encouragement. And so not a Judas, not difficult circumstances, not ch- challenging decisions, not our, not our own weaknesses and limitations, not even the devil himself can thwart God's purposes. All right, so we'll say, see this under three headings this morning. First in verses 12 to 14, we'll see our, our, our unstoppable God, he uses, uses means to accomplish his mission. He uses, he uses means. So to say that God is in control, to say that his purposes will not, cannot be hindered, it doesn't mean that we can or should become just passive. Just, yeah, so what? Just sit back and kind of casually watch, quote, God's will just play out in front of our eyes. No, God accomplishes his sovereign will through means. And so verse 12 Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So a Sabbath day's journey, we don't use uh, distances like this, but essentially what he's saying, it's about 3,000 feet. This is a little over half a mile. And and so he's not making a reference to which day this happened on. He's just, it's a time, it's a distance measurement. So his point in saying this is that the ascension took place in the shadow of Jerusalem just outside of the temple, just outside of the city. Verse 13, he goes on, and, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, he doesn't necessarily specify if this is the same upper room that we think of the upper room discourse uh, where, that, where Jesus spent that, that time with his disciples on the night in which Judas would betray him. And so he spent that time with them. But, but whether that's the exact same upper room or not, they're in this upper room, which is where normally large groups would gather, just the way the houses were constructed. This is uh, The rooms could be larger on the upper level, had all those small those walls supporting those upper larger rooms. And so that's what's happening here. And they're in this upper room. And so before, again, whether it's the same room or not, it's very different circumstances. Before you had the twelve gathered there together the night before Jesus would be crucified. Now... You have 120 disciples that are gathered together here after Jesus has ascended. So very different situation. A lot has changed over the last 42 days. And so these are changed people. And Luke tells us who these people were that were present, at least some of them. And, 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 and you'll notice also who's absent. So Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, different Judas. So 11 apostles minus Judas Iscariot. In verse 14, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now from verse 15, we know there were actually 120 disciples in total. And, And so God... This is what I want you to see. God's unstoppable in accomplishing his mission, but he uses means. And what means do we see him using here in these verses? First, he uses the means of our obedience. The means of our obedience. Why were they in Jerusalem? Why didn't they go back to Galilee for a few days? 
Because what? Jesus told them to stay there. To wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Father. Verse 4, we saw this. This this wasn't the safe thing to do. This wasn't the easy thing to do. Jerusalem was not a friendly place at that time for people that were connected to Jesus in some way. It would have been much safer to find some remote spot, to go back to Galilee, to find some place where they could take refuge, kind of be off off the grid, out of the out of the the, the view of the priests and the and the and and the the leading the leaders within Jerusalem, and so it would have been better to go out there in some ways, humanly speaking. And their funds had to be running low, so why not spend these days, you know, earning some money, go back to fishing and earn some cash? We got to fund this mission endeavor, and why not do these things? But what Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem, and they waited. I know that seems like a, just a passing comment, but This is one of the means that the Lord is using here to accomplish His will. Obedience, just think in our own context, obedience to the Lord's commands in His Word, it's not always always the seeming safest way or easiest way or most efficient way. But but it is the right path. It's the right way. And, and, and our unquestioning obedience is one of the means that God uses to further His cause in the world. Um, all right, I'm going to move on. Another means that He uses. God uses the means of our united and persistent praying. What, what did they do while they waited? Just play, play games? Adult coloring books? You know, just kind of passing the time? Or you know, little phone apps, that kind of thing? Binge watch The Chosen or something like that? Uh, no, all, all of these, verse 14, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And so Peter and the others, they're convinced, as we see, they're convinced that God's purpose, it must be fulfilled. It must be accomplished. And, the, and that deep-seated conviction, though, it does not squelch this bold tenacious unified praying it actually fuels it it fuels it and this beautiful sight that we see here in these verses you have the 11 remaining apostles and you have these women not they're not named uh but it's this group of faithful female disciples of jesus christ they were active in the early church even in as the church is in the womb as it were here mary magdalene perhaps mary and martha Lazarus' sisters and, and maybe maybe others. We don't know exactly their names, but we just say as a side note, women, you you are to be a vibrant, integral part of the life and of the corporate praying of the church, sisters. You you have not just you don't just live vicariously through the men in the church and no, you have a voice, and that's part of the, the praying life of the assembly. Right from the beginning, this is the case. And this was so different from what they had experienced before. Before they had been relegated to the court of the women, not in a derogatory way, but there was, a, there was this sharp distinction. And now here they're praying and prophesying within the assembly, right alongside the men, 1 Corinthians 11. And so you have these women here. You have Jesus' mother, His own mother Mary, who's there. Not as, she's not there as some weepy you know, widow no, she's there as a worshiper of her son who is God's son, Jesus Christ. His total transformation and now how she sees her own son. You have Jesus' brothers who are there. 
Now we know before they were they 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 were mockers of Jesus. This is what brothers typically typically do toward brothers, but in particular they thought they thought he lost his mind by what he was saying and preaching. And yet now they're they're praying to him as Lord. And we know James, one of Jesus' brothers, he would become uh, the the leading apostle in the Jerusalem church. He would be the pastor of the church that actually grows out of this out of this moment. And there are many others that are there. Maybe Lazarus, maybe Nicodemus, maybe Joseph of Arimathea, maybe Cleopas. Remember the Emmaus Road disciple and some dozens of others. But together, this, this group of followers, they're unified in praying. They're, they're devoting themselves, the text says, to this task. And the Lord is using this means. Now, what are they praying for? We're not told. I mean, I can just imagine that part of it would be they're just praising God for all that they've experienced, all that they've heard, all that they've seen, all that they've, they've, they've walked through since His resurrection. Maybe they're praying for wisdom to carry out this great commission to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We need Your help, Lord. Help us. Maybe they're praying for the gift of the Spirit to come as Jesus promised, even though they don't fully understand all that that involves. But I just say God uses the means of our united, persistent, enduring praying to accomplish his unstoppable means. Those are not at odds with one another. They're they're wed together. When God has sent revival throughout church history, he's he's done it by leading his people to pray first. And that's the pattern we see. Christ will build his church. The gospel will spread to the nations His sheep will hear His voice. His people will be protected and preserved until the last day. But we must lay hold of the means of prayer as a church. Those are not in competition with one another. And so this is why, again, I think small groups are so vital within the life of a church. Not, Not because it's some measure and grade of sanctification, but we need the praying of the saints for one another. We have our prayer meetings that will be starting up next Sunday. Please come and join us. Let's put our voices together and cry out to the Lord. This is what the church is doing in utero. This is what church we we do now together as a fuller expression. So God uses the means of our obedience, the means of our praying, and and I would say third, just the means of of our fellowship, of our dependence upon one another. So those first disciples, they didn't wait alone for the promised spirit. They, they waited together. There's this sense of, of seeming desperation as they come together. We need one another. We're not, we're not alone in this. And so they're not obeying alone. They're not praying alone. They're, there's this marked sense of closeness and fellowship and, and sharing life together as they wait. And that too is God's design for the church in this age. Uh, that's that's not unique to the church and the womb here. This is your, your the Christian life is a shared life. It, it, your your identity in Christ is not just something that is true individually, but it's it's part of that identity is the fact that you're wedded in connection with His body. It's who we are. We're part of the church. I mean, the one commentator I read, kind of just seeing it, the overview of the book, but it's just stuck with me. He just says. Rugged individualism, it dies in the book of Acts. It just There's no air for that kind of mindset to exist in the book of Acts. There is, there is this togetherness and, 
And that togetherness becomes a means that God uses to further His unstoppable mission, His ongoing mission. And so the Holy, this is another point, the Holy Spirit will come, guaranteed. Jesus makes this plain. He will empower and He will guide the church. He will ensure that God's mission is accomplished. Everything that He intends will be fulfilled. But that did not mean that His first disciples were just passive. It didn't mean that they were just kind of casually waiting, twiddling their thumbs and just waiting to see what unfolds. No, God used means to accomplish His purposes. They waited, but they weren't idle. God is fulfilling His Word through, through, through His people faithfully obeying Him and crying out to Him together. And, and so it is for us. May, may the Lord find our obedience, our unquestioning obedience. Lord, what do you, what do you want? We want to obey what You say. We want to trust that You are wise. You know better than us. We believe You and we trust that. We, wanna, we, wanna, we want the Lord to find persistent and unified prayer in our church body. We want to find a, a church to be a place where we live dependently on one another. This f- close fellowship, strong relationships where we, uh, and we want this, we want to aim to be more fully engaged in this ongoing unstoppable mission of our triune God. And these are the means that the Lord will use to, to see that come to pass. Second, so our unstoppable God, He uses means to accomplish His mission. Secondly, our unstoppable God is, is not just is not deterred, undeterred by apparent setbacks to our to his mission. So verse 15, we find Peter stepping forward to take the initiative in the story here. Now we're not surprised. He's 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 been the most forceful personality among the disciples up to this point in the gospel accounts. And so we're not told what compels Peter to stand up, which is what the text says he does, but it seems that all of the teaching that Jesus has been doing over these 40 days from the Old Testament and, and, and from the Scriptures and along with all the time He and the other disciples have spent pouring over the Scriptures and all of that seems to be behind this appeal that we find in verse 15. And so in verse 15, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and he said this, verse 16, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And so, what will be clear here, what's clear here, and what will be really clear in a couple weeks is that Peter has been just absorbing all he can from the Scriptures. He, he will see this in his sermon on Pentecost. It's just loaded with biblical references and allusions and and so we're going to see this that he's reciting from memory. So here he, he's he's very clear that that David didn't just write his thoughts in the Psalms. That's not all that we find here. No, the Holy Spirit spoke through David. Spirit is his writing, and the Spirit's giving these these words through David. And these words are concerning Judas who, Peter says, became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He led them right to Him. He was the human instrument of Jesus' betrayal. For He was numbered among us and was allotted His share in this ministry. Now, we know all of this, so maybe these words don't have the, the sting that they, 
they did for those first hearers of Acts, but but this is the, the way Peter is writing this, it's it's underscoring the enormity and the heinousness of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. He was numbered among Jesus' closest friends. He was one of us. We spent three years together and all of the meals we shared, all of the traveling, all of the sorrows and joys and the, and the challenges and the, the learning, all of the lessons we learned at the feet of Jesus. He was, a, he was among us. He was numbered among us. He was allotted a share, that Peter says, in Jesus' ministry. He, he received a portion of it. And this, this same Judas who was numbered among us, who was allotted a share of this ministry, this same one, he led Jesus' enemies right to him. I mean, nothing, nothing stings like betrayal. We've all experienced this in some measure. But this was, this was betrayal of infinite magnitude. That's what Peter's highlighting. Judas's defection, his his suicide after that defection, it would have been difficult for the other disciples, for the other 11 to try to just wrap their minds around what, what they've just experienced. How could a man chosen by Christ for such a privilege as this turn against him? How Has Jesus made some sort of mistake in choosing Judas? Did he pick the wrong guy? Why would God let such a terrible thing like Judas' betrayal happen? Would this, would this completely derail the mission? But what? What do, where do Peter, where do the others find help? They find help in the Scriptures. That the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Now the next two verses, in verses 18 and 19, it's really it's more of a digression by Luke. So this isn't, this isn't part of Peter's, what he stands up and says. This is Luke kind of making a comment about, he's giving us the gory details about how Judas died. And so in um, verse 18, you notice it's in parentheses in most, most of your versions. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now you put this together with the gospel accounts, particularly Matthew's uh, account of, of, this, uh, of these events, and, and this is what seems to have played out. That, that Judas, the blood money that he earned by betraying Jesus, he didn't keep that money. He actually felt guilty perhaps or something, but he went back and threw that money at the feet of the priests. And then he went out and hanged himself. And, and either the rope or the tree branch um, broke and his body burst open after the fall or just he was so bloated from decomposition that his just bowel spilled out on the ground. I'm not trying to get too gross, but it's what the text says. And then the priest used that money that he betrayed Jesus by and then threw back to them. He used, they used that money to purchase this potter's field in Judas's name and make it a, a graveyard. And so it became known as this blood field, whether because of blood money or just because of uh, Judas's death there, being hanged in that field. We're not sure. So that's, that's, what, that's kind of how this fits. But back to Peter's appeal here. So Luke's little digression, we're back to Peter, what he's saying. And he quotes here these two verses from the Psalms. 
Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. Small groups, this would be a good place. You can go explore these more uh, this week. We won't be able to linger there long, but verse 20, you see what he quotes. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. Now you could go back to those Psalms and we could do that now if we had more time, but neither of these Psalms refer to Judas by name. We could say they're not referring to him directly. So how or why does Paul take these passages and make this connection? What's the connection? Well, it's this. Both of those Psalms are what we call royal imprecatory psalms. That's a technical theological expression. But what I mean is in these these kinds of psalms, the, the Messiah is being anticipated as this perfect king. So the, as they talk about the king of Israel, David, or whoever the king of Israel is, as they talk about that, they, they're anticipating the king, the Christ who is coming. And so likewise, the the enemies, then there are these enemies in these psalms, and that's what makes them imprecatory psalms. They're pronouncing woes, judgment upon the enemies, those enemies of the promised Messiah, of this promised coming King. And so in that sense, Judas is predicted in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And that's what Acts 120 is saying, first in reference to Judas's field, and then in reference to his replacement. And so, these scriptures, this is what Peter's saying, they had to be fulfilled. Had to be. Why was it so important to replace Judas? Why was this divine, uh, divine necessity? Well, to fulfill Psalm 109, verse 8, yes, that's part of it. But you can consider other passages. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this twelfth apostle will be one of the future judges of Israel. So that's that's part of it. But who? Who's gonna who's gonna take that twelfth throne? But here's so all of that I think is behind this. But here's the big picture I want you to see in terms of the thrust of why this is recorded for us here in Acts one. It's this: God, listen, God is sovereign even over evil events like Judas's betrayal. This did not catch the Lord off guard. This wasn't a detour in his plan that was going along just great and then Judas really messed things up and so now we have to totally reorient the plan, change course, you know, calculating new route. And that's not it. Yet yet God is sovereign even over events like Judas's betrayal, but but in a, such a way that God is not responsible for Judas's sin. That's a you know, mind start to explode at this. I realize Judas was fully responsible for his wicked deeds, even though they were necessary fulfillment of David's prophecies. And brothers and sisters, again, I can't can't say just the right way to make this fully reconcile in your mind in just a moment but let me just say this is it speaks this should be unspeakable comfort to our souls it should be god's unstoppability his sovereignty should help our troubled hearts when it seems like wickedness is winning when it seems like 
evil and evil men have the upper hand, when it seems like suffering is totally off the leash and is just free to do whatever it wants and to bring whatever havoc it, it wants in this world and in our lives, when it seems like God's enemies are gloating and prospering, we need to gaze at the face of God in the Scriptures and see He is, he is not panicking. His face is not all contorted and, and he's, not, he's not terrified. No, He is on His throne. and He is in control. And he is, he is accomplishing His purpose. And so it's not hard for us to believe in God's sovereign unstoppability when things are going well for us, when the barns are full and, the, and, and, and everything's just splendid in our lives. No, but when things go bad, when we're slandered, when we're lied to, when we're betrayed, when we're hated, when we're abandoned, when we're abused, when, we, when we're injured, when we're diseased, and on and on and on. This is when, then, then we need all the help we can get to believe that God's purpose, even for these things, is unstoppable. And He's using even these awful things in His plan to accomplish His perfect will. And so, and that's not just true individually in our lives, this is true for us as a church, seeming setbacks we face as a church and we face them past present and we will in the future our ongoing triune god's mission the one that we are swept up in by grace it is not deterred by those setbacks no matter what happens to us with us among us his mission is going on and we have a part in it however things unfold Third and final statement before we come to the table, before we sing and come to the table. Our unstoppable God keeps the focus of His mission on His Son. He keeps the focus of His mission on His Son. So verse 21, so one of the men who, who, have, a, so, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when He was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. And so, verse 23 to 26, you have two men that are brought forward who meet these necessary qualifications. One guy has three names. I'm pretty sure why this is why the Lord didn't choose him, but you, know, you have Joseph, Barsabbas, Justice, and then the other guy's Matthias. And they pray to the Lord and they cast lots. Means. The Lord uses means. But God sovereignly chooses. It's His unstoppability. And so you see both in this. I realize lot casting isn't how we operate today. If you look in the church bylaws, this is not how the elders make decisions about matters or anything like that or our staff. Um, this is the last time this Old Testament practice was used by God's people, actually. And so there's this transition. This, this hasn't been replaced now by drawing straws or flipping coins or something like that. That's not... It's not this. It's been replaced by the Holy Spirit within us and, and the Holy Scriptures that guide us. And so, but this, the point of casting lots was, was not, it wasn't so God could in that moment, you know, okay, I see one name on one rock and one name on another rock. Um, and God's like choosing in that moment. That's not what casting lots has about at all. It, 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 is, it's, it, it was the Lord making known to His people the choice that He's already made. It was them. It was the Lord making known His choice. It wasn't about. Uh, this wasn't a way that the disciples made decisions. This was a way the Lord made known His decision to them. 
We need to see it in that light. Verse 26, and the lot fell on Matthias. And, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now again, some want to jump all over the case of Peter here. He's being his old impulsive self here. He should have just waited on the Spirit. And if that was the case, the Spirit would have shown him that Paul's the one that's supposed to replace Judas, not Matthias. But that's not, I don't think that's what the point is. I don't think the text gives any hint that he, they did any wrong here. They're waiting on the Lord. They're praying. They're basing their action on the Scriptures. Peter's now lobbying for his favorite candidate, you know, uh, anything like that. He submits the whole process through prayer to the Lord's sovereign choosing. And, 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 and so, but you just set lot casting aside for a moment. And what I want to see is this, is our unstoppable God is keeping the focus of his mission on his son. The whole necessity, that's the language here, the whole language of necessity, divine necessity of this replacement, it has to do with what? Securing another apostolic witness of Christ in his work. One of these men, verse 22, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So from their vantage point, yes, there was this looking forward to the Spirit who's going to come in power. There, there are these signs and wonders that will be performed through the apostles, and, and it's all by the work of the Spirit. But the core of their Spirit-fueled ministry is going to be about pointing backwards to Christ. It's pointing back as witnesses. Christianity is rooted in time and space and history, the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Apostles were eyewitnesses of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. The apostles, they weren't just religious gurus. They, they, they weren't creative inventors of Christianity where they had these thoughts and ideas that they liked to perpetuate. They were simply what? Witnesses. Witnesses. They're telling the truth exactly as they've seen it and they've heard it. This is what they're doing. This is where our lives connect. Early Christianity wasn't about graduating from the, the nitty-gritty of Jesus and His work to some higher level of spirituality. No, it was the, Spirit, the Spirit's job was going to come and He was going to point backwards to the work of the historical Jesus and all that was accomplished. That's what the Gospel is that we proclaim. It's news. It's, it's, this, it's this news that's outside of us. We're saying this is what's been accomplished. The captives are free because of this work. And so we want to be a church, brothers and sisters, and we'll talk about the Spirit and, and really start talking about the Spirit next week. We want a church that's filled with God's Holy Spirit, clothed with power from on high, and that's manifested in all kinds of ways, brothers and sisters. But that's going to mean that we're a church devoted upward to this work of prayer and worship, but it's also going to mean we're devoted to this backward work of pointing again and again and again to Christ and what He accomplished. And so the table that we're going to come and partake of together, this is, this is what this is, is, is constantly set before us. It, it is this, it's where the unstoppability of this, our glorious, transcendent God, His mission will not be thwarted. It's where that meets these tangible reminders of a broken body and shed blood. The, the eternal purposes of God and the historical person of Jesus. And so Peter had these two realities in mind when he preached 10 days later at Pentecost. And just listen to this and then we'll sing. He says, Acts 2, verse 22, we'll be there in a couple weeks. 
men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. You know Nazareth? This man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that you all saw that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up, listen, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he goes on and speaks of the prophetic words that were written by David long ago concerning Christ. We see divine necessity, certainty. And so we invite you to come and worship with us at this table after we sing of our to our unstoppable sovereign Lord. So let's pray. The Lord would help us as prepare our hearts for this very thing. Lord, help us as we sing now. Even as we sing these words, Lord, that, that though the sun had ceased its shining, though the war appeared as lost. Lord, I know this, this had to be how it appeared to those disciples. It had to be appeared how it appeared to the watching world, Lord. But though it looked like that, that wasn't the whole story. You were sovereign even over those events. Even over the betrayal of Judas. Even over the, the plotting and the killing of Christ at the hands of wicked men. Though that was true, Christ, you had triumphed over evil. It was finished upon that cross. So help us to revel in that as we sing, as we come to the table now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.